You're listening to the Wildenstein Plattner Institute Oral Histories, an unprecedented firsthand account from art historians, archivists, gallerists, and others with close connections to WPI's research projects. I'm Elizabeth Gareyev, and I'm here today with Sylvie Crusard. It is September 16th, 2020. And we're recording an oral history for the Wildenstein Platter Institute's Paul Gauguin Oral History Series. Sylvie Crusard, do I have your permission to record this interview? Yes, of course. Wonderful. Great. Thank you so much for being with us, Sylvie. So as uh, we discussed, I'd love to have a little personal introduction from you. And mainly... Um, Sylvie, how did you get into the field of art historical research? Um, so you could, you could go back as far as your early days working for the Wildenstein Institute, when you started working for the Wildenstein Institute, or even before then. So I'll, I'll leave it to you to fill in, in that first blank. Well, Liz, uh, I must say working for the Wildenstein Institute was my very first job because um, I'd just finished my studies, which uh, by mistake were not history of art, except for a little bit of formation, but my main thing was political science. Oh, interesting. Where, where was that going? This was a total mistake. I should never have studied political science, but finally I, you know, I, I still did, so I finished it. And during the last year, I passed three certificates of history of art because this was uh, very relaxing to me, you know, compared to political science, which I didn't dislike, but it wasn't my vocation at all. So I was relaxing reading history of art books and I passed you needed four certificats to get a license which means which is the, the first degree you know I only had three but um, when I finished my studies I started looking for a job rather in history of art although I had no serious degrees no serious qualification and I found this job with Wildenstein. And um, so my first job was working on Monet. And uh, well, this was rather a solitary work, but once a week came in a man who was a researcher called Rodolphe Walter who was studying the correspondence, Monet's correspondence. And um, this was fun. We got along great, you know, because uh, we, did, we did all these little things like uh, taking maps, you know, really detailed maps, and looking at the curves, which show how high you are, you know, and show the shape of hills, etc., etc. And then we'd say, if Monet went down the Seine uh, 50 meters uh, lower, 
then the church spire would be to the right of this hill, or if you went in that direction, it would be left. So, so we tried to really find out where paintings were painted, you know. And also, another thing which was fun was dating correspondences, because, uh, well, it's a nice thing to do, you know, because you have to remember every detail. And, and uh, if the artist says, I brought my shirt to the cleaners, you have to remember it. Because uh, maybe in another letter, he would be talking about history of matters. And he would say, my shirt has lost its buttons, you know, so you could date the letter, you know. So I learned this with Rodolphe Walter. And uh, besides that, in those days, uh, I, I don't know, I haven't looked at the Monet catalog for a long time, but what I remember of it is that it was extremely succinct, that on the right-hand page, there were six images Every, each, all of them the same size, you know, like about postcard size. And on the left page, there were six squares with the technical info, you know, the same size. So it wasn't very developed. But uh, what was more developed was the research, correspondence, part, et cetera, et cetera, which was mainly done by Rodolphe Walter, you know. So that's how I started in history of art. I had absolutely no formation, <laughs> I must say, uh, but it didn't matter because it was a very easy job, you know, what we were doing and it was fun, you know. So, so that's, that's it for Monet, you know. That's that's fascinating that you remember the topographical maps and trying to piece together where Monet was. And I, I wonder, was the process of investigating um, really the fun part for you? Or did you start to develop an appreciation for Monet's biography? Was it more uh, the the hunt, or was it the appreciation of the art that was really motivating you during that time? Well, the appreciation of the heart was part of the job anyhow, because you had to, you know, understand stylistically, you know, in order to date paintings, for instance. I remember another remembrance I have is uh, going to see Daniel Wildenstein. You know, we saw him very rarely, but I remember he he tried. I was very young, you know, very intimidated, you know. But I remember him trying to see if I was smart or not, and asking me, "Is this?" Uh, 1873 or 1874, you know, paintings which weren't dated, you know. And so you had to have a feeling for things too, you know. 
So clearly you won Daniel Wildenstein's trust since you stayed until the end of the Monet catalog raisonné, clearly, and then you started working on Gauguin. How did that happen? When did you start to look towards Gauguin? Oh, it was uh, much more complicated than that because uh, in the meantime, <laughs> I had discovered my absolute passion, you know, which I discovered in my 30s, which was dance, you know. So at one period, you know, I said, well, history of art isn't really that useful, you know. Dance is much, much more useful. So I stopped working in history of art for a few years. Uh, and I, I still think dance is uh, really as useful, if not even more useful than history of art, because it really is very useful. But uh, anyhow, it's much more difficult too than history of art. So I tried to, I didn't know how to do anything in dance, but I tried to teach a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out that I could never earn my living with it because I wasn't, you know, formed enough. And, and also uh, it's much more difficult than, you know, intellectual jobs. So, so I came back, I've, I found the foundation again, and then I said, may I come back? Because I left it for a few years, you know. How long, may I interrupt? How, when was that exactly, Sophie, that, uh, Sylvie, that you left and you came back? Uh, from 75 to 78. I see. Three years. And the, the Monet catalog raisonné had, had not come out yet. Is that correct? It came out in... I only worked on the first volume. Um, and in, at the end of the first volume, I left Paris for a while, went to London for a while. Then I had to come back because of family things. Um, and then I worked a little bit on Redon, but not very, not very, for a very long time. And I think it must have been at the time I discovered dance. So, so the really intense thing was dance, you know. And well, I had to come back to history of art to earn my living. <laughs> Right. So while you were in London, you were strictly doing dance. You you weren't involved in any type of art. I mean, this this was an absolutely absurd time in my life because I wasn't really doing anything. I was, uh, well, this was the dropout period to, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds absurd nowadays, anyhow. London didn't last for just a few months, you know. Then I came back and um, worked on Redon. And for Redon, were you doing similar research in the mode you were doing it with? Because this was the very beginning of the Redon catalog, so I was doing regular documentation, constituting... Um, files and all. This was just setting down the basis for the catalog, you know. But uh, 
I liked Redon, you know, but then Redon, I mean, like, I was young. I didn't love Redon like I love him now, you know. I didn't quite understand the scope of uh, the whole thing. So things really got started again when, when uh, in 78, uh, Daniel Wildenstein, uh, I, I, I said, do you have anything I could do? And he said, well, yes, you can do Gauguin. That, that might be a good thing, you know. And in those days, you hardly got any <laughs> indications, you know, of what to, what to do in your work. So you were, at Willensteins, you were always very free to organize your work as you want to orient it the way you want it, you know. So then I started with uh, Gauguin, and I've, in those days, uh, well, in those days, the person who was on the Gauguin was Douglas Cooper, who didn't live in Paris, who came in, came in from Monaco from time to time, and a rather nice girl, who was his secretary, you know. And I was on the drawings, organizing them, and then I started, um, when I, I started organizing the documentation too, because for instance, there was no correspondence file, so I started collecting the, the correspondence. I started files on collectors. I started more than files, you know, great, uh, how do you call them, classeurs, you know, these books with holes, you know, where you put. Okay, I started creating lots of categories of documentation. There was a whole wall filled with uh, newspaper articles, a whole wall filled with topographical um, documentation. For instance, if you want to see Le Poudu, then you have maps of Le Poudu, you have photographs of Le Poudu, you have lots of things, you know, and um, then uh, documentation about, uh, I don't know the, the word for état civil, these are the documents which you collect from town halls when you're, when you're born or when you die, you know, and, and then notary, notaries archives, you know, for successions, Yes, government government files, government papers. Government papers, yes. So Sylvie, can I can I ask? It sounds to me like this was all a very self-motivated and self-directed project for you. It doesn't sound correct me if I'm wrong, that Douglas Cooper was coming in and telling you what needed to be done. You you just decided to do this. Is that correct? Well, he wasn't really asking me anything. I, I was in charge of the drawings. He was doing the paintings, you know. I see. So, but I was sending him info about drawings connected to paintings. Uh, I knew the letters, you know, 
so I could tell him, you know, for this painting, it's quoted in this and that letter and stuff like that, you know. But Douglas Cooper was in Monaco anyhow. He, he asked very precise, Alix de Fontenay, this other girl, she was really very much like a secretary more than anything. You know, she, she would write his letters and classify paper. And I was doing what I felt had to be done, you know. So, so I, I've always been totally free to do what I wanted, you know, even on Monet, you know. So. Right. <laughs> so it sounds like the experience with Monet and doing the dating with correspondence really shaped what you started to undertake with, with Gauguin's letters. How did you move into the paintings? Into what? The paintings, working on Gauguin's painting. How, how did I get to work on that? Yes. Oh, but just because uh, Douglas Cooper died. I see. So it, he worked until his death. And when was that? He died in 84. Okay. Yeah. So how far had he gotten in his endeavor? And he, he did it by himself with his secretary, occasionally asking you questions. Is that right? I didn't understand. Did he, Douglas Cooper, since he was not in Paris, he was in Monaco, he was compiling dossiers himself with the help of a secretary. Was that secretary in Paris working yes. with you at all? Yes, yes, she was, she was. But um, Douglas Cooper was re... Well, now we get into uh, a real story. Oh, please tell. <laughs> yes, yes, because what happened... I'll, it's the story of the Gauguin catalogue. What happened, I mean, after the catalogue was published, in 64, is that for the first time, you know, people in general, museum keepers or dealers, etc., had a view of Gauguin's work, you know, collected. So they could form an idea of what a real beautiful, good classical Gauguin is. And what happened is that uh, all the Gauguins which uh, Cognac had put in are not all of them classical. He put in lots of Gauguins, you know. And for some reason, um, people criticized his catalog, especially there was um, an article by Merete Bodelsen, where she was right because she had the Danish information which Cognac didn't have. So she did a lot of additional critics, but she also criticized his way of working. And then there was an anonymous article in some, I think, I forget which paper, an English speaking paper, maybe a British one. Anonymous by Douglas Cooper, where really <laughs> Douglas Cooper dipped his pen in Forconia's blood, you know. <laughs> he said, uh, 
the catalog was filled with fakes. And, uh, and so, I, th I mean, I wasn't there, you know, I wasn't working on Gauguin yet. It was in 66, 65, 66. But now I realize from looking at the files, you know, that poor Gauguin must have been very un unhappy and unjustly because his work was actually very honest, very sound, and very sensitive. Whereas after 66, mid-70s, and in the 80s, began a period of severity for Gauguin works. So under the direction, Douglas Cooper probably went to see Daniel Willenstein and said, see, Bordelson criticized the catalog, and your catalog is filled with fakes. You have to redo it. So he was given the direction, you know, and he eliminated just dozens of works. And when I started working on Gauguin, we were absolutely just in the middle of that period, you know. So Gauguin, so Douglas Cooper was supposed to, well, he rewrote the catalog, but. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I don't think he wrote it better than Konya did, you know, because Konya uh, was using documents. Of course, it was in a very succinct form, but still he was using letters and making comparisons with drawings. And um, Cooper was doing a much more work which was much more fast, you know. So that's what was happening in those days, you know. So Konya was the subject of Douglas Cooper's anonymous and strategic criticism. How how did the Wildensteins respond to that? Because their name, of course, is on the 1964 catalog Raisonne. Well, I wasn't there, you know. But all I can see is that Konya must have been strongly criticized unjustly, in my view. And afterwards, for a few years, uh, you, you find little pages, scribbled pages in the, the files of the works where the decisions were made by a committee consisting of Douglas Cooper, Raymond Cognard, and Daniel Wildenstein. And so there was a committee already in those days and I think poor Cunha must have been unhappy. <laughs> well, certainly. So are you talking, there was a committee after the publication of the 64 catalog? Yeah, in the 70s or something like that. In the 70s, I see. Okay. It's called a committee, you know, because uh, supposedly it was Daniel Wildenstein who had the, the, the last word. But for one period, I believe... Douglas Cooper must have had the loudest voice. You know, he was a very outgoing man. And he, yes. A bit like a trumpet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we had fun with him, you know. <laughs> but, but, uh, but I don't think his work was... Uh, I preferred Cunha's work, you know. 
So when Douglas Cooper dies in 84, what happens to his files and what happens to the project? Well, um, what happened by then in 84 is that Victor Merles published his incredible correspondence with uh, footnotes, which are more developed, as developed as, as letters, you know. So up to then, the model, the ideal model of art historians was uh, John Revolt, you know, history of impressionism, of post-impressionism, with the use of letters, um, you know, it's a sort of a scientific approach, but Merles made the approach a thousand times more um, pointu. I don't know the English word, but much, even much more precise. It was another level of research, you know, because he went into archives which no one would ever have, have thought of. So this became, for me, uh, the model. So I collected more info. Well, I wasn't in charge of only the drawings, and then I, uh, I had the, the paintings too. So I just developed, the, 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 you know, the collecting materials. Uh, you know, as, as I told you, archives or correspondence and stuff like that. And, and then, um, then came the 1988-89 big Gauguin exhibition, which was another date, you know, in the history of art because it was a really great catalog. You know, I was, we were told, if I well remember it, maybe wrong, right or wrong, but that they had a huge team working on that with lots of young helpers. We were told 30 people, I don't know, anyhow. So this became the model. So at one point when I started, I started rewriting Cooper's, because Cooper died just before he had finished. And I, I don't remember how it happened, but I started rewriting his work because it was uh, scientifically not up to either the Merles or even the 88-89 exhibition standards. I see. In, in the sense that Cooper was a one-man show and wasn't knocking on the doors of archives and really digging into the provenance research like these two scholarly endeavors did. Provenance research is a later phenomenon. But, uh, well, we always did, of course, it, I mean, Cooper was more, I wouldn't say a one-man show, but it, he, he, he was a generalist, you know, and he just was writing his stuff easy in Monaco without much scientific information, you know. So... I, I can't remember how I restarted rewriting. I started rewriting his notice, you know. But of course, it was natural 
because Cooper hadn't read Merlès, you know, for instance. You had to read Merlès if you wanted to publish a good catalog. So, so everything from that on, everything had to be rewritten. But I remember I asked uh, Daniel Willenstein to change the formula of the catalog from the Monet formula, you know, which was so <laughs> meager, to the 1988-89 exhibition formula, which was much more developed. And Daniel Wilmenstein said, yes, you know, and that's how the catalogue became not only a catalogue raisonné, but a catalogue critique, you know, which means that you have permission to uh, develop or, uh, like on the artist's intentions, uh, his aim, precise aim in each painting, etc., etc. And that really has become your specialty, Sylvie. I don't know. No, I think everybody can do that. Well, I, I think that you're uniquely positioned. You've a, a accumulated a, a wealth of knowledge in having worked on these files for so long, not only the, the documentation that you collected, but it seems that you are a resource for a lot of Gauguin scholars working today. Can you talk a little bit about some of the people that you've met over your time as the resident Gauguin scholar um, and some of the archives or findings that you've come across in your position that were, would have been unheard of or were not accessible to people like Douglas Cooper or even John Rewald? I, I didn't understand everything. Uh, you were asking about what archives, for instance, we've come across. Yes, archives and other discoveries that you've come across. Well, the main archive fund we discovered was with um, the only person who really worked on Gauguin, because Alix de Fontenay, the Cooper's secretary, she stayed on, but she wasn't really a researcher. She was a really nice guy, but nice girl, but, but she wasn't really an art historian. But at one point came in a girl called Martine Audron, who was a fantastically stubborn and precise person, you know. So um, we decided to explore the notarial archives of Gauguin's family and uh, digging them up, you know, and then we read them together and we interpreted them together. And we got this huge family archive, which, which we have here, you know. And we had to learn types of documents existing, you know. I forget the names, but they're not just uh, succession, you know, they're much more complicated and, and financial things. And um, and it, we found about the Gauguin paternal side's fortune, which woman they, they had a little bit of money. Then I researched a lot about Flora Tristan, 
and we had the, we had her her succession files too, you know, material files, and um, this was uh, a lot of fun. But we did millions of things, you know, in that area. As for notarial files, also I got some of Schufnicker's notarial file, which I should never have gotten, but but the, he gave them to me. And uh, for a long time, I was embarrassed because they weren't supposed to be published. But now time has expired, and I think they can be published. You know, what else about documents? Well, you know, collecting letters. You know, it's a slow job, but. Uh, it's always fun too because that's how you read the history because you don't only collect Gauguin's letter letters you collect letters which speak of Gauguin letters addressed to Gauguin and then you put them all in the same book you know so you can uh, you can see the story developing and then you have to redate them which is uh, at some periods, when he was in Tahiti, Gauguin was dating his letters because there were so few boats, you know, and they took so long, so he put dates on his letters. But for instance, in 89, he doesn't date his letters. And so Malang published them, but we had to rechange, completely rechange the order of the letters, you know, and which uh, implies which allows to change or modify, let's say, the date at which he stays in Le Pouldu or, or pont you know, he goes back and forth between both, so you have to try to understand, you know, in order to be able to, to try to guess whether this or that paintings like Le Christ Jaune or whatever, whether it was done in, in Le Pouldu or in Pont-Aven, whether it was done uh, in Le Pouldu from a Pont-Aven drawing, for instance, or, or stuff like that, you know. So, And these letters that you're coming across and dating, how are you finding these letters? Are they being presented to you by other scholars, or are you traveling and seeking them out? No. This is something which should be done when, whenever there is a catalogue raisonné. The documentalists who are working on the documentation should be looking at the autograph dealers' catalogues, you know, at the sales catalogues. You know, this should be done systematically if you work on an artist because you find lots of things. And um, so that's what we did. We went to all the autograph dealers' little shops and looked at their catalogs from from 20 years up to 2003 but, or 2001. But since then, it hasn't been done, and it should be done, you know. Right. And so I would imagine that researching methods today of course are very different than they were when you began yes. with the Gauguin catalog raisonné. Can you talk a bit about uh, what has changed and whether you're relying on internet research? 
more than you did in the past? Is it in the past things weren't online, so you had no access to them. Now this is a big, huge progress, you know, that people can consult things which are online. So, so Providence Research certainly has done a huge step forward, you know. I, I, my opinion, if I may say something, is that uh, history of art is very much turning into forensic exams and provenance research, and that the sensitive uh, aspect of it is uh, less important, you know, then the proportions have changed. Before that, the sensitive aspect was uh, foremost, and now it isn't anymore. But I think, of course, you know, you need the scientific research, and if it's possible, of course, you should do it, you know. But then uh, you should also develop some uh, firmness in uh, your personal vision of an artist, you know. Do you think that the shift from um, the vision of the artist to provenance research is due to people being fearful of forgeries and wanting evidence? Of course, and, and they're right. You know, uh, you must have all the evidence which is possible to get. And now, nowadays, it's much easier to get more evidence. You know, so of course, you have to, to do it. You know, but I think... Since the 1990s, where prices were multiplied, you know, since art became such a financial affair, you know, the tendency, the parallel tendency is to re rely, request all these guarantees, scientific guarantees, which are still not, you know, the only guarantees, nor maybe the best, you know. I think lots of people have gone into the art business, you know, and they're afraid of making decisions because they don't know enough, you know. And uh, this is a tendency which doesn't diminish, it rather spreads, I would say. And it's a bit sad. <laughs> what are some of the stylistic aspects of Gauguin that you think are very important to his art, but that are often overlooked, particularly when people aren't, as you say, giving as much importance to um, maybe a connoisseurial approach? Are there certain are there certain stylistic elements that that you feel are, oh, are essential very, very to, to a Gauguin? question. It brings me back to the end of the first story I told you about the appreciation of Gauguin's work, you know, and the, the period of severity, you know, which was spread, severity spread in the... 1970s and 1980s and but it was 
I mean, this was, you can't reproach it, this was sort of what a general tendency. Uh, it was even intelligent people, you know, were into it. But then we started at, at Wildenstein's. We started slowly inversing the tendency because Gauguin is actually a fierce experimentator. And all the experimental works had been eliminated or refused because, for instance, there are many, many experimental drawings, as many, even more than paintings, you know. And when they were presented, they were refused immediately, you know. Even Daniel Wildenstein, who was a great art lover, you know, and connoisseur, you know. He was into that because everybody was into that, you know. And then finally, I remember one day when, because there were some experimental drawings, for instance, in well-known sketchbooks. And I sort of collected experimental drawings of one kind, for instance, dynamic experimental drawings, and then uh, of another kind, for instance, illustration-like experimental drawings, or roundish experimental drawings, you know. I collected them in groups, you know, from loose sheets, and also put them together with things which were recognized as Gauguin's because they were in sketchbooks. And I remember bringing them to Daniel Goldenstein and he said, well, if that one is Gauguin, you know, because it has a very similar one in the sketchbook, then all of them are Gauguin, you know. And from that day on, you know, dozens of experimental drawings were accepted. You know. And I was young, I was struck by his uh, uh, faculty of decision, you know, because I thought they were right, probably. But, you know, he, he just made the decision. It was impressive, you know. All of them are right, you know. And this changed the view we had of Gauguin's work, because then came uh, experimental works or works done quickly in a very dirty manner, you know, but still, still, you know, spontaneous works. And so we started reintegrating into Gauguin from the 90s on lots of aspects progressively. And it's from our view here in the, well, in the Gauguin catalog, it's uh, very clear and um, it's done, you know, practically all, all the works which had been put away into boxes as not being by Gauguin, you know, practically, I mean, practically all, maybe there are exceptions, you know, have been reintegrated into the catalog. 
but I don't know how this, how widespread this vision is, you know. I, I'm not sure besides the catalogue Gauguin, everybody uh, easily agrees. I, I don't know, really. But the vision of Gauguin's work certainly has changed from the 90s on, you know. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, uh, how, while you're working on the catalogue Raise a Day, do you deal with criticisms that you might be presented with or contradictions to the work that you already have in progress? Does, does that happen often? Do you, no, do you change all, your opinion very uh, often as you're first working? First of all, we're not published, so there's nothing to criticize. When we publish, then, you know, critics will arrive, you know. But then, of course, we try to foresee criticism. And uh, when we publish, we try to explain the reasons why we make this and that choice. But as long as you don't publish, you get no criticism. (laughs) It seems as if... Art historians today want to be very succinct in their answers because they're not looking to justify why they've come to a conclusion about a work of art. But are you saying that you'd be willing to talk about why you believe the work of art is indeed the work of art? If you if you're developing about a painting, you know, uh you have to try to convince people <laughs> so you give your arguments you know sure uh, it seems absurd not to give your arguments it's not easy you know right right so um, for instance mm-hmm. i've been talking about like pontaven is a very experimental period so there are tricks which Gauguin develops uh, ways of representing, for instance, vegetation as if it was a simplified sculpture or, um, well, lots of stylistic tricks and and other tricks. So there's one part in what you write where you have to talk about this. But it's it's hard because uh, it's a matter of um, sensitiveness or feeling. You have to choose uh, the, your words very carefully and use as as few words as is possible. It's not an easy thing to do, you know, or at least it's an artistic thing to do. You have to you have to have. Uh, a good feeling to do it, you know, or some taste, you know, or whatever, you know. Can you give, can you think of an example of a work that has been widely doubted, no. but you just feel no. it is absolutely right? No, I can only think of big, huge examples. <laughs> well, no, but um, yes, uh, let's see. Well, for instance, in the Marie-Henri succession, you know, Marie-Henri had some works by Gauguin, which he left at her place. 
and they were photographed. Um, so you have Marie-Henri right. photographs of some works. And when I got to, when I started working on, on Gauguin, at least half these works, works were considered not to be by Gauguin, you know. And finally, we reintegrated them one by one, up to, for instance, um, I don't know if you remember this chimney lintel, which was attributed to Cerusier, and which probably still is attributed to Cerusier. No. It's, no, no, it's not Jonah Rock. It's in the same room. But it was on the chimney piece. It's a horizontal little narrow thing with Breton dancers. We had meetings with uh, Carolyn Volter, ah, yes. okay. who I really like very much, you know. And we had meeting, a collective meeting between the Gauguin uh, com committee and the Cerusier meeting, you know. And everybody... Um, defended their point of view, you know. And, um, well, I mean, I'll tell you something which you won't like, but I think, like, I'm sure it's by Gauguin, you know. I'm, I'm sure of it. I, I was, you know, when, when I had, when the, the experimental aspect of Gauguin had been, you know, unearthed, you know. Uh, I had another view of Gauguin. And one day after I had a clear view of, uh, of Gauguin's experimental aspect, one day I saw the lintel, which I had seen several times before, you know, but I don't look at it every day because it was in the Cerusier boxes. You know, and then I said, but that's Gauguin, you know, just because I, I felt that some lines had to be Gauguin, you know. This is because the vision of Gauguin's work had changed in, in, in the meantime, you know. And so now I'm as sure, you know, like, as an art historian, you can never say I'm sure, you know, because... You're sure you'll be wrong sometime, anyhow, also, you know. But um, no, I'm sure it's by Gauguin. But I think Carolyn still hesitates because last time I saw her, she told me, I haven't got the silver bullet, you know. But to me, this is fun, you know. And I feel this is the, my categorism of philosophy. If we want to catalog it, we catalog it. And if she wants to catalog it, she catalogs it too. And that'll show people that, that'll prove to people that uh, history of art isn't precise science, you know. Because uh, I, I think if, if that happens, I don't think it will happen. But if it did happen, I would think it's really hilarious, you know, <laughs> and it would be a good proof, you know, that, well, uh, history of art is a very lively uh, activity, you know. It is, and 
can I can I ask you some of the scholars that you've worked with? Who have been the ones that have really influenced oh. your thinking about Gauguin? I must say I'll disappoint you, but I would say nobody. Merles, maybe. Merles impressed me by his work. Now, just switching topics a little bit, Gauguin, uh, a lot of people like to talk about the controversy surrounding Gauguin um, as a white European man going to Tahiti and fetishizing Tahitian young women. Has that characterization of Gauguin had any effect on you and your appreciation of his work? (laughs) Never. This is a, I've read, um, I mean, I'm I'm not really supposed to read much about the Tahitian period, but I still did read, uh, I tried to find things on the internet about uh, Tahitian sexual habits, you know, and I read one guy who was a doctor who seemed pretty serious, and apparently, well, what happened, actually, I mean, like, in, we, we weren't there, but I think what Gauguin says, you know, which is probably right, he says, I, 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 want, to have, I want a woman, you know, I, I want to live with a woman. So the people in his uh, neighborhood said, oh, do you do? So, well, there's a family over there in this other village who has a young girl and she's ready to, to get married, you know. So he goes there and um, he talks with the parents. The parents ask him, uh, uh, are you a good man? And Gauguin says, uh, <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and so they said, they say, um, well, our daughter can go with you and um, she'll come back in a week from now. And if she's, she wants to stay, she doesn't want to stay with you, you know, she'll stay with us, you know. So that's what happened. And uh, the girl went back to her family, but she, she went back to Gauguin's, you know, place. And I read in this book that this was how things were done, you know, that girls were considered mature to have uh, sexual relationships when they were about 13. And um, the... Having sexual experience was, that's what this book said, considered as an advantage, you know. And they had their opinion to give on the partner. And so apparently, you know, Gauguin did something which was absolutely within the Tahitian traditions. Also, wait a minute, I've read something. Where did I read that? Oh, recently. I think, apparently, because, you know, it's supposed to be a legend 
initiated by Fourier or people like that, you know, Diderot, that uh, Tahitian girls made love very easily. But I read something last week, I forget where, where apparently it wasn't a total legend at all, you know, sexual mores were much freer in Tahiti than in France anyhow. And I'm sure, you know, in France, sexual relationships were horribly complicated uh, in the, at the end of the 19th century. You know, you had to resort to uh, to Cousette, you know, young girls, Grisette, Cousette, who were then dishonored, you know, uh, uh, or you had to pay, uh, you know, regular familières, etc., etc. But it was very complicated because in the 80s, 90s, you still had to keep this virginity facade, you know, which was crumbling a bit. But the, the big change came around 89-90, it started completely crumbling down, you know, the sexual question started changing, but very slowly, you know, and, and the bourgeoisie was still on, you know, like, I mean, the, 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 the rules were still on officially, you know. So Gauguin had a hard time, you know, in, in France, also, Gauguin didn't really have a very satisfying sentimental life because he, he was like his grandmother, you know, he uh, it failed with Met, you know, and uh, I think he never had the courage to start something serious again because he could have, you know, there were in the artistic milieu, you know, there were some girls which were much more free than bourgeoisie, you know. So he could have had a big love, you know. I like Perusier, you know, who wasn't uh, as attractive as Gauguin. You know, he had a, a girlfriend who was brilliant. He had Zapolska, you know. <laughs> so Gauguin certainly could have had Zapolska if he had tried, you know. So Sylvie, can I can I ask somewhat of a different question? In 1903, Gauguin dies. And his works that he had um, by that point in his career, were his works selling? He didn't die in misery. Well, he had a contract with Volard, you know, which was a complicated mm -hmm. affair, but still it worked. So, so I don't know what's the aim of your question, but he, he wasn't miserable and... And he made it. I, I don't know when the big change came, probably with Volard's contract. But then this, you know, is, isn't something I have studied in detail. Right. This is the, this is the area of uh, Rick Bretel. I'm wondering if you could just give me a little bit of background about Rick and well, when you um, met him and when he got involved it's, in the project. Uh, you, Wildenstein, who decided to put Rick on the project. 
And so what happened is that Rick um, wrote me a letter, a very beautiful letter, very diplomatical, saying, oh, you know, I've read what you've written, I feel I know you, etc., etc. And for some reason, even before I met Rick, you know, something really clicked, you know. <laughs> like, I remember, I remember uh, I, I wrote back uh, very politely, uh, old European you know, way, I, I wrote, Dear Mr. Brutel, and Rick um, wrote back saying, not Mr. Brutel, I'm called Bretel, I'm, Bretel is like braces, you know, and I, I remember I wrote back, watch it because braces will turn into embraces, you know, and we, we had a, I mean, we had a, it, it clicked perfectly, you know, <laughs> perfectly well, even before meeting, you know, and, um, well, we had a really good time together, you know, in committees, you know. Like, if there was a difficult case, we'd sit there and uh, talk about other things. And then suddenly, you know, we'd make the decision, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, this was a great time, you know. I mean... All I can say is uh, Rick was so nice, you know, that we had to get along fine, you know. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Now, I'm just looking over my notes, and I'm wondering if there's any other topic that we haven't probably think like of it to speak about. As soon as we've hung up or, or during the night. But <laughs> let me think, what, what could we talk about? Um, Maybe we can just talk a little bit about the upcoming publication of the Gauguin catalog raisonné, both the Tahitian portion and then the portion that you're working on, Sylvie, uh, the Breton portion of the catalog raisonné. How do you think they will differ from the past Gauguin publications? Are there going to be surprises Oh, Are there new inclusions? I don't know how Rick has organized his part, but uh, I know it's, anyhow, it's going to be a catalogue critique, anyhow, because you have to with Gauguin. Because Gauguin is a very, I mean, it's not Renoir who just paints away because he, he breathes and he wants to paint, you know. Gauguin is a guy who uh, thinks more than twice before doing something, you know. And he doesn't do much. I mean, he chooses what he does. You know, he doesn't paint 7,000 paintings, you know. Um, and besides, the more uh, I, I got familiar with him, the more I see that he's a thinker, you know. So... There are very many hidden ideas in his works. So that's why you have to have 
a catalogue critique, because because the subject is too rich. You know, it's not a little landscape when you say it's painted direction north northeast. You know, and you see the spire of the church of so and so. You know, it's much more complex than that, and it's very interesting because. Well, because Gauguin was a very intelligent man, you know, and a far-sighted man who indicated directions which are still valid nowadays, you know. So, so you have to develop, and so the catalog has to be much more developed than maybe than any catalog before, because. Uh, the subject is important even nowadays, you know, and it's incredibly rich. So I've also done lots of context studies, I must say, which I hope you publish, because uh, the problem, problems Gauguin is dealing with, you know, you have to know about them, you know. So I expose these problems, you know. I know you, you write about how he was a very spiritual person. A spiritual person, of course, of course. And uh, even a philosophical person, too, which is not that easy to write about if you haven't the philosophy knack, you know, because, I mean, like... Uh, you read his history of art, but you reading Hegel is something different. You know, it's not that easy, but still, you have to know about the context to understand his positions, you know, or sometimes to discover his positions. Because Gauguin writes a lot, but uh, you have to understand what he writes. You know, it's not always uh, quite obvious. So you have to try to interpret him. Is there a particular painting in the Breton period that you feel has been misinterpreted in the past? Misinterpreted? No. But you can... Well... I guess what I'm saying, in light of in light of the information that you've uncovered and the understanding that you now have of Gauguin, have other have historians in the past gotten him? Do they understand him in the way that you feel like you do now? Oh well, look, I'll, there are things which uh, I would like to say, but when it's going to be published, you know. So. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll tell them to you now, but uh, maybe you'll cut them off. <laughs> because, for instance, in the Cristo Jardin des Oliviers, there are Buddhist solutions, which nobody has ever pointed out, you know. So, so I did a study of uh, how Buddhist thought was perceived in Gauguin's days, you know, to understand what there might be behind these Buddhist illusions. Also, something which I very much developed, you know about that, is Famille Schufnecker, you know, because uh, 
there's so much behind, you know, the, this portrait, collective portrait, you know, that if you don't talk about it, you miss lots of the point, you know, what other paintings. Belangel has a lot of uh, hidden meanings too. Um, I guess so. Well, I could find other examples, but uh, they don't come up to my mind right now. Well, you, you can always try to, you know, make slight rapprochement, you know, bring things together. Even in Famo uh, Tournesol, who was at uh, Marie Henri's, you can think of lots of things, you know, which are connected with it. Which is this Gauguin catalog raisonné opens the door to lots and lots of developments. And I, I don't think another artist is Gauguin. Well, yes, probably you could find other artists where you can do the same thing, but Gauguin is particularly apt to call forth lots of developments because it's a very rich character. Well, thank you very much, Sylvie. I, I think we've covered quite a lot and I okay. very much appreciate okay. hearing. <laughs> Maybe not everything, of course, but, but some of the things anyhow. Well, thank you again. Well, thank you too. Thank you too. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the WPI Oral Histories. All copyright WPI 2020.